Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals. With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse, and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by Josh Singer. Josh is, of course, the Oscar-winning screenwriter behind films like Spotlight, The Post, which we've covered on the show before, co-written with Liz Hanna, First Man, which he wrote for another past Script Apart guest, Damien Chazelle, and most recently, Maestro, his Leonard Bernstein biopic co-written with Bradley Cooper. Maestro is absolutely phenomenal. I didn't know anything about the composer going into the film, but was absolutely mesmerized by the tale that he and Bradley told. Now, my relationship with music biopics is quite complicated by my love for two films, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, and more recently, the Daniel Radcliffe Weird Al movie, both of which are absolutely ruthless parodies of the tropes that music biopics often lean towards. Maestro, however, steers clear of these tropes. Instead of rifling through the creation of the composer's biggest and best-known work, and then looking for the parts of his personal life that explain away how those songs were written, this drama kind of puts all of that aside to concentrate on his relationship with Felicia Montalegre, the actress who became his wife. The ups and downs of their marriage as Bernstein begins to embark on bisexual affairs really do make for a compelling tale I was gripped from start to finish. Josh is a master storyteller and this film, featuring beautiful performances from Kerry Mulligan as well as Bradley Cooper, is a sensitive, expressive exploration of the idea of genius 
and what allowances those in the presence of such genius sometimes permit at great cost to allow that artistry to pour forth. I won't forget it for a long time, so it was an absolute pleasure to chat with Josh about this incredible movie. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk about the spec script that Josh wrote years prior about the composer George Gershwin that prepped him for writing Maestro. We also get into the meaning of that beautiful quote that opens the film, a work of art does not answer questions, it provokes them. We talk about the ambiguity of that title, Maestro, and who it really refers to, because it's perhaps not Lenny. And we're also lucky enough to have Josh talking about the script for Maestro that existed when Steven Spielberg was entertaining the idea of making this film. Josh first came on board the project when it was the Fableman's director likely to be taking this to the screen. It's an absolute joy of a conversation. I had so much fun with Josh, who even peppers in a few musical moments into the conversation. You'll see what I mean. So thanks to him and thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping make this episode possible. If you're not yet a member of that community, but would like to get involved, you can head to patreon.com forward slash script apart, where for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can help this show continue to grow and get all sorts of perks in return. That address again, if you'd like to check it out, is patreon.com forward slash script apart. Okay, I'll leave the intro there because as you can maybe hear, I have lost my voice. I don't know how, maybe it was too much podcasting, maybe it was screaming at the football yesterday too loudly, who knows. The conversation should be fine though, so I hope you enjoy. This is the wonderful Josh Singer discussing the first draft secrets of Maestro, a film I absolutely loved. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey, Josh, great to have you with us. How's it going today? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad that you're doing well. I wish I could say the same, Josh. Do you know the trepidation of being someone who calls himself a journalist interviewing the guy who wrote Spotlight. <laughs> You're versed in what actual journalism looks like, Josh. It's, uh, it's nerve-wracking, I'll be real with you. Uh, well, um, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm quite sure you'll be, we'll, we'll be just fine. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I actually wrote three journalism movies. Uh, the first one is the one nobody knows uh, called The Fifth Estate, uh, which was about uh, Julian Assange. Uh, I had a wonderful time working with Bill Condon uh a great director uh, and the second one was spotlight and then the third one of course was the post which uh i got to write with liz hannah and, and work with mr spielberg which was uh a real joy so um so not to make you even more trepidatious <laughs> uh, but uh but uh anyway fire away i am gonna do my best like do not expect mike resendiz but i'm gonna do my best <laughs> Um, huge congrats on Maestro, Josh. I love this film. I've got to admit, uh, Leonard Bernstein, as, as like an artist and a public figure, he occupied kind of a blind spot for me going into this film. I, yeah. I knew very little about him beyond, yeah. I think, West Side Story. The film kind of absolutely enchanted me despite that ignorance. And I wondered what you think it is about Maestro when, when you strip back the celebrity of, of these two figures, Lenny and Felicia, that transcends the need for any awareness of, of the Bernstein story. Not all biopics function that way. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that uh, that's sort of what Bradley uh, tapped into uh, when he came on board. 
he was always interested in finding what was universal um, as opposed to, you know, that there are plenty of biopics about famous people and, and those people wind up feeling somewhat distant from us because they're not necessarily like us. Whereas I think what, what Bradley was most interested in, you know, was, you know, the, the parts of Lenny's life that were very much like, you know, very much things that we all struggle with and specifically marriage. And yes, this is a unique marriage in that it is between a queer man and a heterosexual woman. Um, but it's not unique in that I, I think that all marriages involve compromise, uh, involve uh, little uh, contracts we make with the other person uh, that are sometimes difficult to keep. Um, and as a marriage evolves, uh, those, you know, deals we made are sometimes uh, good things to keep us in check and sometimes things we chafe against. Um, and so in that way, I think what he's made is a, what I think Bradley drove us towards is really a quite, as I said, universal film about uh, family and marriage. And in your pursuit of that, you kind of leave a lot of interesting things out of the film. Like it struck me on my second watch that a lot of music biopics, they kind of zip between milestones that audiences are familiar with. So the creation of this famous composition here, a famous performance there. Maestro doesn't do that. It's not a visualization of Lenny's Wikipedia page moving through the chronology of his career. We don't even visit him in the creation of some of his best known work, such as West Side Story. As a result, it, it does feel like a film determined to, to define Lenny, not by his musical accomplishments, but by the man that he was away from music, the man he is with Felicia. Why was that important? Uh, look, I, I think that, you know, oftentimes when biopics do, as you say, where they zip between the sort of the highlights, the greatest hits of like what happened and give you sort of the behind the scenes, I think oftentimes those biopics struggle to, you know, create a real narrative. Um, that that you know, or, or they fall into a very standard artist artist, great success struggles. You know, comes back from the struggle. It's it, it's pretty tropey, right? Um, it, it, you know, whereas here, you know, I think what what Bradley's, frankly, you know, very interesting instinct was um, was to you know uh, focus on. What are the points at, of Lenny's life that were most meaningful to him, right? What were the points and that were most meaningful to his story, right, as a, as a human, right? And so really, and, and, and look, we thought that the lens of the marriage was pretty interesting because you start off with this man who's struggling with whether to get married at all, right, given, you know... Um, you know, again, he's a queer man, but he's a queer man who needs family. Like even, and we didn't show this, but even in his young life, we, we do show his sister, Felicia, but Felicia and Burton, his sister and brother, were incredibly important to him. He needed that family from the get-go. Um, and he was with Felicia, and then he sort of separated from her, and then, he, you know, they were engaged, and then they broke their engagement, and then they came back together. And he was struggling with the same things, which we sort of, you know, hint at pretty strongly in the movie. He doesn't know whether, you know, even though he clearly loves this woman and sees the family that they could create, he's not sure that that's where he wants to, that's, that, that's right for him. 
and ultimately makes that decision, you know, despite his you know love affair with David Oppenheim and several others. Um, and that decision is one that sort of frees him up and allows him to become the Leonard Bernstein we see in the middle of the movie in the interview with Edward R. Murrow, where he and Felicia are quite happy and he's created all these amazing things and he's about to take over as head of the Philharmonic. Um, and then we sort of fast forward to when, you know, does this marriage still hold? Does this pact still hold when we move into the color section? Um, and he struggles again, you know, and struggles again with this decision, ultimately realizing that he can't live without Felicia and that the decision, the pact was the right one for him. Um, and she has the same revelation because she's also struggling, you know, because, you know, she, she, she loves him, but she also sees how, 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 how much he's struggling within the bounds of this relationship. And so she thinks, well, maybe I don't need him either. And then realizes, no, I can't live without him, despite how irritating he can be, you know, as a mad creator. Like, I can't live without him either. Again, this is all, uh, to me, what, what, what Bradley pushed us to was to create an arc that was strong in and of itself. That even if these people weren't Leonard Bernstein and Felicia Montalegre, you'd be fascinated, right? You'd be interested in this marriage because, you know, how many... How many times do we look at like, you know, a queer man and a heterosexual woman and say she's a beard or say that's that's not a real marriage? When in fact, like, I think there are a number of people for whom who who, who have exactly these kinds of marriages. I, you know, I could I could point out, you know, any number of people I know, older folks who have lived through these kinds of marriages. And it's not that it's not it's not just it's not a fake thing. It's not a beard. It's actually something real and of substance. And. To us, that was sort of the powerful, emotional human story. And then you have the trappings all around it, right? Of like, of who Lenny has become and the celebrity, which becomes another, in some ways, obstacle. Um, you know, and, and look, I, I have to say, you know, if you're really interested in West Side Story, go see Stephen's West Side Story, right? <laughs> if you're really interested in West Side Story, there's a great YouTube uh, audio file of Jerry Robbins and Lenny and 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 um, and Steve Sondheim and um, and the writer uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment, although he was fantastic. Um, you know, sitting around and talking ten years later about you know the you know there were four Jewish gay guys who made West Side Story. Very interesting, right? Um, you know. It, but there are plenty of places to turn to. If you want to see Lenny doing young people's concerts, go watch their young people's concerts on YouTube. There's Omnibus on YouTube. This was the story that you can't easily access. Um, and, 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 and look, if you want his music, well, we've got plenty of his music. And, and to me, you know, less interesting, look, you, you know, if you turn a lens on me singing at my computer trying to type out a script, it's not going to be very interesting, right? <laughs> but hopefully watching the movies will be pretty interesting. And the same thing with Lenny, like a lens on him struggling to sit and write. We, we did that. We, we had a shot of him lying back and trying to come up with mass and we wound up cutting it. Because like it wasn't very interesting until he got to the piano and actually started writing mass, right? The, the end of mass. And so, you know, but that said, like, I think this is the greatest. Uh, it's one of the better. I mean, the the album, uh, the, the, the Maestro album has been number one for four weeks, you know, in terms of traditional classical musical albums. And I think it's because it's a wonderful 
uh, composite of all of Lenny's music that holds together as a great score because it's all music by Lenny, even though we're covering the ballets and the symphonies and everything else. So in that way, I feel like we're doing more showing and less telling about who this artist was, uh, if that makes any sense. So, Josh, you've, you've mentioned a few times the kind of narrative and thematic places that Bradley kind of pushed the story towards. In a way, this is, you know, a perfect film to cover on Script Apart because prior to Bradley coming on board, you had already done a pass when Spielberg was looking into making a film based on Lenny's life. I'm fascinated. What did that Spielberg pass at the script look like? Like, I'd love to know the kind of beats in Lenny's life that the script hit uh, versus what you show in Maestro. Um, you've mentioned a few times how it was Bradley that kind of located Felicia and Lenny's marriage as the heartbeat of the film. What else changed from the Spielberg version to the Bradley Cooper version? I mean, everything. It was a complete it was a complete rewrite. But to me, it's it's actually an interesting example of exactly what I'm talking about, which is to say, you know, Fred Berner and Amy Durning first got the rights. They started working on this in 2008, if you can believe it. Um, they nailed down the rights in 2010. They got Marty Scorsese interested through Chris Donnelly, who was uh, one of Marty's guys at WME and who was my agent at the time. Um, and then they came to me. Um, I, I didn't actually have much on my resume, but I had, you know, I was, you know, Fifth Estate was about to come out. And you'd done the Gershwin. I had, that's right. That's you've done your homework. Very good. See, great journalism right there. Hey. Ah, uh, Resendez, look out. You're coming for his <laughs> job. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, no, so I had written a, a spec script on George Gershwin writing Porgy and Bess, um, which is how I came into the orbit of Amblin. Stephen had uh, bought that script and made me a blind idea, which turned into the fifth estate. Um, with the idea that maybe we would get back to writing Porgy and Be the story of Porgy and Bess someday, which, by the way, we're playing with right now. Um, uh, with uh, We're playing with, with a wonderful uh, director uh, who shall not be named at this point, but uh, hopefully that'll be a limited <laughs> series coming to a streaming service near you uh, in the next couple of years. Um, but, you know, but they, you know, I think what they, what Fred and Amy liked about that script was how I'd handled the music. I, I sang in college. I was one of these, in one of these silly acapella groups. I love music. I specifically love music of dead Jewish composers as a, as, as a, as a, as a kid who grew up singing in synagogue choir. Um, you know, uh, I've always had a yen, um, for, uh, for, for the Hebraic, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Um, and so based on that, you know, I, I had a one hour meeting with Marty, which was tremendous, like getting to meet with Marty Scorsese. And I you know, had really nothing on my resume that said I should be in that room. And he was very supportive. And I got hired to write, uh, write a script about Leonard Bernstein. And I, like you, knew nothing about Leonard Bernstein, save West Side Story. And thus began an odyssey, a wonderful odyssey of getting to know his music uh, I, I I like to joke that, you know, the 100 scripts I've done is like a series of playlists. I literally have seven or eight or nine playlists. I even have the playlist from when I pitched Marty and wanted to play him the music selections. He's like, no, 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 I know them all anyway. Just, to, just you know, just <laughs> it'll distract me. And he did know them all anyway. I think we even started singing one of them uh, along the lines, um, uh, along the lines of the pitch. Um, Is he a good singer? Can you give us that exclusive, Josh? He can, he can hum a tune. He can put over a tune, Marty Scorsese. There you go. There you have it, listeners. So, <laughs> shouldn't be surprised. The man who who pulls the um, intermezzo from um, uh, what's the it's the great intermezzo from uh, 
Raging Bull, one of the yeah. one of the most beautiful selections in Raging Bull is the um is the et- intermezzo from uh what is it from? Cavalier, it's from Cavalier Rusticana. Uh, you know, so um it which is just amazing. Uh let me see if I can play it for you here. Will that work if I play it? Um, because it's such a it's such a um hold on, hold on, I gotta find it now. Um let me see. <laughs> Give me a second. Well, maybe we can maybe we can play at the end, Josh. I'm I'm wary of time, and there's so much that I know listeners are going to want to know about this film. All right, all right, all right. Uh, we can go out to the intermezzo to Cavalera Rusticana. So Marty was great, um, and then uh, and then I went off to write, and it, the script took a while, in part because I got distracted by Spotlight which started going, um, I got distracted then by, and then I very quickly got the job to rewrite the post. Um, and literally Fred, poor Fred and Amy and Chris Donnelly, frankly, we're all, we're all, uh, poor Fred and Amy and Chris Donnelly, uh, we're, we're all sort of like, where's our script? Where's our script? But I think one of the things I was struggling with was exactly what Bradley wound up struggling with. One, you know, how to make this story interesting, you know, beyond just, going through the highlights of Lenny's career and, you know, and, and how to make it non-standard. You know, if it's, I'm writing for the great Marty Scorsese, it better be something good. And I wound up taking an approach that was, I tried to do my version of eight and a half, where it was very full of magical realism. And I structured it all around this decision in 1957 you know, Lenny has this amazing, so if you look at Lenny, and, and essentially I, I focus entirely on Lenny's early life. So Lenny has this amazing out of a out of a canon debut, uh, which we depict in in Maestro, you know, 1943, he's 25 years old. He winds up subbing uh, in for Bruno, uh, Bruno Walter at the New York Philharmonic, something that was never done. You know, yes, he was the assistant conductor, but generally the 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 musical director, um, you know, would come in and and would take over. Um, but uh, the musical director of the Philharmonic was stuck up at his farm in Stockbridge, um, and so uh, and so Lenny essentially has to take over, which again was never done. He was twenty five. It was a Sunday broadcast, so it was on the radio. Um, and everyone in the country listened because it was during World War World War II. And that's what you did on Sundays. You listened to the New York Philharmonic on your radio. And so the whole world hears Lenny do this broadcast. Um, and he's incredible. And it's like it's literally front page news in the New York Times. Can you imagine in this day and age somebody conducting, <laughs> you know, for the first time and the New York <laughs> Philharmonic being front page news? It was not only front page news, I think there were three articles in the Times that that day. Right. One on the front page and then two more inside about Leonard Bernstein and who was this kid, because before then, you know, all the famous conductors were like Kusevitsky. They were they were Eastern European guys who would come over here with thick accents and were old men, you know, and and were even though Kusevitsky had been Jewish, he converted. Right. And, and 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 so the idea of a young American Jewish conductor was huge. And not only was Lenny sort of an instant celebrity, but beyond that, he wound up writing this little ballet called Fancy Free with Jerry Robbins, which was a huge hit. It was like, you know, like sold out shows for 10 weeks, standing ovations every night. 
And it was so big that they said, well, let's make it into a show. And they made it into On the Town, which is, again, a huge hit. So in in 43, 44, right, Lenny has this amazing introduction to the world, right, Um, where this Harvard kid who was part of the first class at Tanglewood, you know, you know, summer student uh, music school, which became a huge thing, which Lenny then taught at. You know, a protege of Kusevitsky's becomes this amazing conductor and this amazing co- composer seemingly overnight, right? And he's 25, 26 years old. And then he literally struggles for the next four or five years, like, well, what am I going to do? Because Kusevitsky, and the words we use in my show are the actual words from a letter from Kusevitsky to, to Lenny, you know, you must live, your, you know, forget this musical theater, you must live your life as a clean, you know, live your life clean and change your name to Burns and all of this stuff. And he really struggles with, okay, I'm not going to write musical theater, I'm going to go the straight and narrow and do conducting. And then, and then Felicia comes along and is like, why not? Right. And literally when Kusevitsky dies, and by the way, Lenny, so he has this huge hit at musical theater in 1944. He really doesn't write another musical for 10 years. Right. It's not until he then writes Wonderful Town. And that's after Kusevitsky dies, after he marries Felicia. So, like, it's this really amazing, um, it's this really amazing moment for him of, uh, uh, of literally becoming you know, of sort of opening up and blossoming in the 50s, right? And so, and then he writes Wonderful Town, he writes Candide, he writes West Side Story, he's conducting more and more, and then the New York Philharmonic offers him the position of musical director. First, he shares it with Metropolis, one of his mentors, they they co-musical direct in 56, and then 57, they come and say, do you want to be musical director? And it's sort of the, it's the very height of the early part of Lenny's career. And he takes the job as musical director. And so what I thought was, let me structure around that sort of, it's such a great, you know, lift. Let me structure around that lift and the question of, do I want to compose or do I want to conduct? And to me, what I was always fascinated by was the decision after the high, the the height of Candide and West Side Story coming out one year after the other. And even though Candide didn't do as well as West Side Story, everybody loved the music. And West Side Story, of course, was huge and then became huger still with the movie. the idea of he then makes this decision to push aside the composing to run the Philharmonic. And how could you not? Because it's the New York Philharmonic and they're constructing Lincoln Center and he's going to be the grand poobah of Lincoln Center. And, you know, and 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 they're but and yet it is it is a decision. And so I constructed the whole script around that decision, you know, and interweaving bits of the past and and jumping through time in a sort of eight and a half magical realism type way, where Felicia is sort of the B story who sort of grounds him in, and allows him in the 50s to say, yes, I can do everything. And then nonetheless, he sort of shuns Jerry Robbins and decides he's just gonna, going to conduct the Philharmonic in part at the behest of Glenn Gould, who I sort of recreate the famous contretemps with him and Glenn Gould uh, over the, 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 the Brahms uh, piano concerto where Gould slowed down the tempo. And so that was the, it, so it was a really very, um, it was eight and a half. This is what it was, yeah. right? For Lenny's <laughs> life. And it was really trying to be the contemplation of, you know, artistry and genius, you know, with Felicia sort of as the, as the underlying story. And, you know, I finished this at long last. And um, it's funny because it's a little known story that, you know, we were, you know, so a couple things happened. First, I gave it to Marty. And this is right after the post, 
right? So I gave it to Marty in like the fall of 2017. I finished it right after the post. I'd finished the post. And Marty said, well, I still want to produce, but this is not for me to direct, which wasn't a huge surprise. I mean, you know, Marty Scorsese doing a movie about a queer Jewish musician is not exactly on brand, right? <laughs> but nonetheless, it was, was, was kind of a bummer. But by that time, I had become close with Stephen and Christy, Christy McCosco-Krieger, who's Stephen's right hand. And I slipped them the script and they flipped for it, which was really exciting because like, you know, Steven Spielberg flips your script, you're pretty excited. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I wanted nothing more than to work with Steven again, because working with Steven on the post was such a joy. Um, and Steven basically was still was was was, you know, was early on. I mean, he'd been working on West Side Story for years, but like they still hadn't sort of nailed down, nailed down the fact that the Robbins estate was going to approve. And that was a little difficult because the Robbins estate wanted the dance numbers to be, you know, of, of a piece with what Jerry had originally done. Um, and so there were some questions as to whether Stephen was actually going to get to wake mess, get to make West Side Story. And so we just started working on the script very quietly, Stephen and me. Uh, with Christie's input, you know, to try to get it better. And it's interesting because the one thing Stephen kept pushing me on, he's like, this is all very clever and I loved all, all the movements, but like, who is Lenny and can we get closer to who Lenny is and what what he really is at his core? Because Lenny, because I had him bopping around to so many different events, was somewhat passive. Um, and we were working on that, we were working on that, and then there was sort of this odd turn in January of 2018 that the rights option was up. Was Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal kind of in the mix for it, do I remember? Right. So so, so this is where Jake gets involved and it's interesting. So, so Fred Bernie Durning, remember, had essentially nailed down the rights in 2010. So we're eight years later and the Bernstein kids had, had allowed them to re-option the rights several times at this point. And 2018, it's time again for the Bernstein kids to allow them to re-option the rights. Now, the Bernstein kids, you know, from, they don't know about Stephen's involvement. We kept that very hush-hush because Stephen was working with them on West Side Story, and he didn't want to spook them by saying, well, I might do this instead of West Side Story. So they didn't know about Stephen's involvement. They only loosely knew there was a script. And in the meantime, Jake had, on his own, independent from us, had essentially overseen the creation of a script, right, about Leonard Bernstein, had gotten Carrie Fukunaga to sign on board, and was sort of whispering in Jamie Bernstein's ear, hey, I've got this other project, maybe you want to come work with me. When your option is up in January, maybe you want to switch horses. Um, which, hey, look, I understand, like, Lenny's fantastic, and 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 look, Fred and Amy hadn't produced anything yet. I mean, I was barely, I just finished the script in 2017. It had taken them seven years. I totally get what was going on. And the Bernstein kids, I think, were somewhat interested uh, in in Jake's, in, in what Jake had to say. But here I was in January and Fred and Amy and I were like, well, what do we do? Because we're hearing rumblings that the, we weren't, we're hearing rumblings about Jake and we're hearing rumblings that the Bernstein kids might switch horses. So I was full of hubris. I was like, well, Stephen loves my script. I'm sure they'll read my script and know that this is a winner. And so we sent them my script. And uh, in a rather devastating turn of events, they said, yeah, that's very nice, but we think we're not going to renew the option after they read the script. And, and what, what it turned out was, and we got this feedback from them, and they were right. They said, like, well, we don't really see Lenny in it. And and again, and look, I've gone back and read the script now, 
Um, and it's very clever. And there are a lot of great little pieces and behind the scenes of great events, you know, as you know, we've talked about tend to happen in standard biopics. And there's a very clever moving around in magical realism. But who Lenny is, and certainly it, it doesn't quite get it who Lenny is, and it really doesn't get it who Lenny was in the later years, right? In, in a darker half when he's struggling with the marriage with Felicia, when he loses Felicia, it doesn't get at any of that, those darker sides of who Lenny was. Um, Credit to the family for wanting to show that darker side. Correct, correct. And look, I had just been afraid to go there. Um, so essentially, you know, it's January and Fred, Amy, you know, and I are literally like, oh God, right? We're going to lose this, you know, because again, as far as the kids knew, we had bupkis, right? Whereas, you know, as far as, you know, whereas the kids had this other script and they didn't love the other script either. They're really tough, those kids, right? So like they didn't love the other script either, but that one had Jake Gyllenhaal and Carrie Fukunaga attached, right? So it was, it was, it was clearly ahead of us. And so they started making noise. They basically for a minute, you know, declined to re-up the option and and started making noises about going to Jake and 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 Carrie Fukunaga. So I, I thought we were dead in the water, but fortunately, uh, Stephen and Christy and I had held this tiny little read through um, at Amblin of my script to just see to hear it aloud to see how it was. And the read through was great, and we had some wonderful actors uh, participate. And Stephen had walked away from that read through and said, like, okay. You know, the script's not there yet. I've got some notes, but we're close. And I had started working on that rewrite. And in the meantime, Bradley Cooper had heard about the read-through because, you know, as happens in Hollywood, you do a read-through at Amblin with Steven Spielberg in the room and the trades are going to get hold of it and they're going to write a story about it. Because there were enough actors in that room that somebody let slip, hey, this is happening. <laughs> and so Bradley, I think Bradley's reps had read that in the trades. Bradley had always wanted to play a conductor. He played he played stand-up bass in the school orchestra as a kid in Philadelphia, not far from me, uh, Germantown Academy. Um, and, uh, and I went to public school, but but uh, but but not far from Bradley. And um, and he was obsessed with music and conducting. Um, and so he'd always wanted to play a conductor. And so Dave Bugliari, who was his rep, reached out and said, hey, Bradley's kind of interested. And so when I finished my draft, which was probably in February of 2018, uh, maybe early March, and we're still, you know, we're about to lose the rights and we're freaking out. But, you know, sort of Stephen is still interested enough that he sends the script to Bradley. And Bradley reads it immediately. He literally was on vacation in Fiji and, and we were shocked. We were told he was in vacation in Fiji and he probably wouldn't get to it for a week or so. Literally the next day, we got a call. He read the script. He was very interested. And could he talk to Stephen? And they they had a Zoom like that day. Um, and essentially, Bradley was like, I think the script needs work, but I'm in. And so for like 24 hours, I had Stephen directing Bradley on my script, right? Which is really <laughs> freaking exciting. And I was like, well, now the, now the Bernstein kids are going to come play with us, right? And... Um, and yet, literally, 24 hours later, Stephen, essentially, it was he was close enough to West Side Story, and that was really where his heart was. He wanted to make that, that movie. And so he was like, you know what, I'm going to go make West Side Story. And, uh, and Bradley, to his credit, immediately said, well, if you're not going to direct, I'd love to take a shot at it. And so, you know, and, and why don't you come see Star is Born? If you like Star is Born, maybe you'll be 
interested in having me direct. And and then, you know, this has been much reported. We all went to see Star is Born. Steven gets up 10 minutes in, you know, whispers to Bradley something. He comes back to the chair. I said, what did you whisper to Bradley? He said, I said, he's fucking directing Maestro. You know, like, because the first 10 minutes of Star is Born are just amazing, as you know. Uh, and the whole movie is great. And so... Um, and so Bradley signed on, and that's when I started hearing rumblings of. And first of all, we, you know, Bradley walked in and convinced the kids, you know, to to stick with stick with the original horse, right? Um, you know, and so they re-upped the option, and then you know, and 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 we were off to the races there. And and look, kudos to Bradley, but by that point, we, you know, there he was far. Steam was far enough with along with with West Side Story, Stephen and Christie said, hey, we're going to come on this as producers with Marty. You know, Bradley's going to star and direct. And it was a package, you know, it was an offer they couldn't really refuse. Right. Um, and look, I got to say, I felt bad because, you know, Jake's a great actor. And uh, and uh, I know a lot of people worked very hard on that script and loved Lenny as much as we did. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I felt less bad because Fred and Amy had been working on this for since 2008. Um, and so, you know, um, but, but, you know, that's sometimes the way these things go. Um, and, um, and, and so, uh, we were off to the races, but then I, as they're making Bradley's deal, I start hearing these rumblings of page one rewrite. The three worst words <laughs> a screenwriter can hear. <laughs> exactly. And typically they're followed by, oh, and he's bringing on his own writer. Um, and so it was all really rugged. But, you know, to Bradley's credit, you know, he saw I'd done a lot of research. He saw I knew a ton about Lenny. He saw I knew the music. And he was open to a partnership uh, and said, do you want to come on this journey with me? And I said, well, and I couldn't imagine stopping at this point. Um, <laughs> and so we began. And it's funny because I was talking to Christopher Hampton the other day, who's lovely. Um, we did a, a, a back and forth. And he said, it's a bit challenging, isn't it? You know, when when you write one script and then a director comes on board and, you know, the director says like, well, this is all great, but I've got a little bit of a different idea. right? Um, and it was challenging. You know, it was challenging because I had to divorce myself from the way I had been thinking about the story. Um, uh, but I will say, you know, where Bradley came to, we very quickly, Bradley very quickly uh, began focusing on this book, The Private World of Leonard Bernstein which is this wonderful, uh, it's a picture book, um, John Gruen, who's depicted in our movie by Josh Hamilton. Uh, John Gruen was this sort of celebrity gadfly, photographer, sort of journalist, who uh, wrote books and published articles and wanted to do a, an in-depth book on Lenny and his family and literally told his wife, uh, Jane, who is this famous artist, uh, Jane Wilson, um, he and Jane went to uh, to Italy with the Bernsteins for the summer. And Jane and Felicia painted all summer. And John spent the summer interviewing Lenny and Felicia and the family. Um, and it was really something um, to, uh, it was really something to, uh, you know, because all of these interviews wound up in this book. And the book was not like our movie. The book was not about, you know, Lenny's, you know, triumphs, although it mentioned them. It was really about the marriage and the family. And it was really, and there were pictures of the family all together, you know, and at that point they had three kids, they had Jamie Alexander and young Nina. 
Um, and it and it captured them in these very intimate moments. And it's a beautiful book. It's funny because it's a book the kids and the family did not very much like when it came out because it was, it was, it was, it was, it was too intimate. It was too much of an exposure, right? I mean, now we it's frankly quaint, right? But for the time, <laughs> it was incredibly revealing. Um, although, of course, it didn't go into Lenny's sexuality at all. Um, uh, uh, but uh, but nonetheless, it was revealing of who they were. And so they didn't like it at the time. But now, years and years later, it's this wonderful time capsule. And, and Bradley and I were immediately drawn to it. You know, And moreover, not only did we have the book, but the actual audio tapes are all in the Leonard Bernstein office, right? And they were in the process of digitizing them. So we could sit and listen to hour upon hour of these tapes. And and for a moment, Bradley was like, well, this is the entire film. We should just set the entire film here in Italy. And eventually we wound up moving from that. But the idea of the film is about family. And instead of the decision, the inflection point of the film being Lenny deciding whether or not to take, o take over the Philharmonic, the inflection point of the film in some ways was that moment in 67 um, which is Lenny and Felicia deciding whether or not they have a marriage, right? Because one of the wonderful things about those growing tapes is, on the one hand, you hear the joy of the marriage. There's actually literally a, a, a moment when they're all talking about the marriage and, and, and the marriage night and why they were so nervous, right, with the kids. But you also hear the cracks. You see, you know, you, you see that this is a marriage that is, this is a marriage Act that is starting to come apart a little bit at the seams. And so it became sort of for us a, oh, there's everything that leads up to this moment and then everything that comes after. And that became the, 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 the focus of what the film would be. Um, and so it was, again, at first very challenging for me because it's a complete reversal and then became very, very exciting because it was something much more universal than anything I had come up with. Hey everyone, this is Al, just jumping in with a quick word about one of our great sponsors this week. I know this is a podcast about first drafts, but guys, we have got to talk about Final Draft, the world's best-selling screenwriting software. Simply put, it's the easiest way of actualizing that exciting idea you have for a new screenplay. Final Draft 13 just dropped, and take it from me, it's by far the most customizable version of the software yet, full of easy-to-use tools so that you can get more done with your writing sessions. With industry-renowned features like the Final Draft Beatboard, Outline Editor, and Navigator function at your fingertips, you're going to find yourself charging towards your storytelling goals more efficiently than ever before. It's the first-choice tool of professional screenwriters everywhere for good reason. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart your 2024 writing journey today by visiting finaldraft.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Let me confess something to you guys. When it comes to caffeine, I'm going to throw my hands up and say I'm an absolute addict. For years, I've wanted to reduce my coffee consumption so I can sleep better and feel less jittery. But coffee has always felt kind of vital to my writing process, to the point where I've worried that my productivity would drop off without it. Then I discovered Magic Mind. It's a delicious daily green shot full of all sorts of great organic ingredients that help you get into your flow state without caffeine shakes and sleepless nights. 
It contains a compound called L-theanine that reduces your body's stress levels and an ingredient called Bacopa Monieri that turbocharges your working memory. Try it today and start crushing your goals for 2024 by visiting magicmind.com forward slash janscriptapart where you can get 30 days for free when you take out a three-month subscription. Use the code SCRIPTAPART at checkout, where you can also take advantage of their exclusive January offers. That address again is magicmind.com forward slash janscriptapart, or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. The film opens with this quote, and, and I adore this quote. A work of art does not answer questions, it provokes them. And its essential meaning is in the tension between the contradictory answers. How did those words relate to the story you wanted to tell with Maestro? Why open with that quote? I mean, I think to me, um, I think the man and the marriage are both full of contradictions, right? Uh, I think Lenny is, you know, you go online and you watch him, you know, teaching an omnibus to the young people's concerts or even you watch him teaching at the end of our movie and you see a joy and a warmth uh, you know a very jewish educator uh you know in that long jewish tradition of teaching and education um you know and he provided all that warmth to the world and all that wonder to the world um you also see a man who is full of love Right. And he says, I have love. My heart is open. And yet, as we're watching this film and the way his marriage starts to devolve, you see also a narcissist, right, who uh, is a guy who needs what he needs and wants what he wants. And, you know, and as an artist decides to cast off everything when he leaves Felicia in a very, you know, in a very selfish way. Um, and you see someone who frankly could be exhausting, which is how Jamie would characterize him at times, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 I think there's something really challenging about, you know, his relationship with Tommy Catherine, you know, which I think what Felicia found challenging was not that he was sleeping with a, a guy. Right. But what she found challenging was that this was the guy he was telling his stories to, that this was the guy who would become his person. Right. That he's bringing Tommy home with them, you know, like they're all going to be one happy group, you know. But at the end of the day, at the premiere of Mass, he's not holding Felicia's hand, he's holding Tommy's. Right. Um, and, and, and on the one hand, it's understandable. On the other hand, it's incredibly painful, you know, given the, given the the what what she'd done for him and and the, and the, and the deal they'd made so and begins to not only do you start to question Lenny as a person you start to question the marriage right is this a real marriage or was this just a convenience that Lenny employed so that he could have all those things right in a world that wasn't approving of queer men right so he could be the head of the Philharmonic and so he could live a public life you know and now that he doesn't need her because we're in the 70s and and you know there's much more you know uh, there's much more approval of queer men we don't have to worry about j edgar hoover hunting you down right you know is he just going to toss her off and discard her and yet when he tries to he can't live without her right so maybe the marriage is something 
more powerful than and more real than we might have thought five, 10 minutes ago. And we're sort of wrestling with those contradictions of, you know, the central question of, is it a marriage? Is it not a marriage? You know, the central question of, you know, is Lenny a wonderful, you know, a wonderful, joyous spirit that gives to the world? Or is he a selfish narcissist, you know, asshole who just does what he needs? We're wrestling with those questions and contradictions throughout. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, um, I think it's in the contradictions that we find what's real and what's human. That's fascinating. I love the juxtaposition of, of the opening two scenes that follow and, and what they signpost about the story to come. So first we have this glimpse of Lenny in later life playing his A Quiet Place postlude, I believe it is. A Quiet Place being Bernstein's 1983 opera, not the John Krasinski movie with aliens, listeners, just to clarify. Um, Correct. He's moved to tears by the composition as he plays it, and um, he kind of discusses it in relation to a great loss he suffered. I've often seen her working in the garden, he says, alluding to the ghost of someone he's loved. He doesn't name Felicia, but the scene is full of hers and she's. Then abruptly, we, we cut to Lenny waking up as a young man in bed with another man. I love the intrigue that creates um, versus if, if the movie simply began at the chronological beginning of the movie. Like, uh, you know, you touched on his, his bisexuality then and what the kind of social context was for it at the time. It isn't all that unusual, of course, we recognize today a man being bisexual. But I think in the context of Maestro, it signposts this impossible to pin down character who refuses to be confined to one box. You're also intrigued as to how this young man so full of life in scene two will become this older person who you've, you've teased in, in the opening scene, so weighed down by loss by the end. Was this always how, you know, once, once Bradley came on board, was this always how you began the movie, Josh? And, and what made it such an effective way to, to start this film? Yeah. So, um, and I've given us a little soundtrack here. Uh, this is one of my very favorite pieces. And it's one of these amazing things because it really does. It's great in symphonically, but it's even better on the piano, which Lenny talks about in the interview where he plays this. Um, uh, uh, it, I, I find this movie, this music heartbreaking in the way I find the movie heartbreaking. I think uh, Bradley and I were always captivated by... Um, the contrast between the two Lennies, right? So if you look at if you look at Lenny when he's an older man, right? He's very much full of regret. He's very much saddened. You know, he's he's clearly clearly out of the closet, right? <laughs> and much queerer in a, in a clear way, uh, at least his physicality and the way he talks. And yet he talks longly of Felicia, right? It's 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 in, inherently full of contradictions. And then you look at him as a younger man, you look at him on Omnibus or Young People's Concerts, he's as, he, he seems as straight as, you know, as, as the day is long, right? He literally just feels, you know, and he's very much mastering the Harvard, you know, the guy's from Boston, but he's mastering that Harvard sort of like, you know, accent and, you know, and he's, you know, full of vigor and seems heterosexual, frankly. Um, and so, we always love that contrast. And what's funny is we originally had the idea that that should be the way we, we, we literally should open with old Lenny and then go back to young Lenny. 
right? And and and, and in the original conception, it was open with old Lenny, who seems very fey, right? And then go to young Lenny, who seems straight, right? And how did we get from one to the other? Um, and what happened? That was that was early on in our writing, and as our writing evolved. We wound up, you know, for a while, we had this whole Italy section, which was based on the private world of Leonard Bernstein, which was used to frame the memories in, in, in the whole top of the movie. So it was instead of starting with old Lenny in color, we were starting with Lenny in Italy in color, which is sort of when he's, you know, the Josh Hamilton interview, which now takes place in, in which we wound up repurposing to take place in Fairfield because we wound up not shooting the Italy section. Um, but we were right up to shooting and planning to shoot a whole section in Italy with that interview and other interviews, you know, taking place in Italy and that would use, be used as wraparound for the first half of the movie. And ultimately, when Bradley got into shooting the movie, he found that um, he really didn't want to go to Italy. He didn't want this random interviewer who was going to play such a big role, right? Because the story was Lenny and Felicia. And he thought that there was enough goodness in Fairfield you know, in what he was getting in Fairfield without words. Uh, there's wonderful sections, you know, which are played to Louis Armstrong, St. Louis Blues, which Lenny did with Louis at Lewinsome Stadium, and then into Adagietto from Mahler's Fifth. He thought that there was enough goodness in terms of showing, you know, baby Alexander and, you know, young Jamie and Lenny and Felicia happy that that would, you know, yet with cracks, you know, the long walk with Oppenheim quietly. And, you know, he thought there was enough there that would would serve for the middle of the movie. We didn't need this whole Italy section, which would be almost a distraction. And so we repurposed a number of those conversations Right to take place in Fairfield, to take place, you know, one is one is with Gruen in Fairfield, a direct interview in color. One is in black and white with uh, Felicia and 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 uh, Shirley, uh, played by Sarah Silverman, wonderfully on the grass, um, talking about, you know, it's hard to be in the orbit of my brother. Um, you know, so we wound up um, doing all these great um, retrofitting for some of those Italy scenes. But when we did that, we were like, well, how do we open? And that's where, and we had always planned to shoot this interview. It comes from a CBS interview for 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace. And um, we'd always planned to shoot that interview uh, anyway. And so, you know, Bradley had this idea, well, what if we go back to this idea we had way back in script form? You know, he actually, even before that, he said, well, what if we start with old Lenny? I was like, well, you're not going to have a complaint from me because that's how we <laughs> talked about this three years ago. You know, like, <laughs> and the difference being like, yes, older Lenny, you know, is somewhat fey, but he's talking about Felicia the whole time. And it's really and it's really, you know, then when you cut to young Lenny, well, he's much hardier, but he's also in bed with Oppenheim. Right. And so immediately you have that question, as you said, it's the first question in the movie, like <clears throat> this wife he's talking about. Could that be a real marriage? Is that a real marriage? Right. You know, and so you immediately pose the first question in the movie in the first two scenes. And to me, I think a great movie always, you know, within the first 10 pages poses the question of the movie, the question of the movie we're wrestling with the whole time. So mission achieved. Um I love how the film then introduces Felicia and begins to show the spark between them. It was really interesting hearing you talk about the sort of magical realism that existed in some of your early drafts, because something happens 
that's really fascinating about 20 minutes into the film as their relationship starts to flourish. There's this drift for a moment into a certain lyricism in terms of the filmmaking. Felicia asks to see what uh, what Lenny does and to experience his music close up. And, and they run out of this garden luncheon into a theater where they sit on stage watching men in sailor outfits dance to uh, something from On the Town, I believe. All of a sudden, Lenny's in the sailor suit dancing for Felicia. Now, there isn't a scene in the film where Lenny sits down and explains to Felicia his sexuality. And I wondered whether that scene is a coded way of showing that that's been communicated to her. Was that the case or am I reading that wrong? Yeah, no, very much so. And and it, it's really, um, so what we're doing there is, so first of all, it's funny because when when Bradley first jumped on board, while he wanted to start from scratch, he was quite entranced with the magical realism bits. And he was like, and we had we had a lot of them. And we wound up trimming them back. First, first we realized you can't really have them in the color segment. Once you get older, like it's it's there, it's gotta be more real, right? Which is part of the reason why we go to color. And so there's less room for sort of flights of fancy. Whereas the black and white is more memory and it's meant to feel like memory. And so in memory, of course, you can have flights of fancy. Um, I think we had even more in earlier drafts. We wound up eventually trimming them down because we didn't want it to get, we we wanted there to be enough that would feel like flights of fancy in memory, and yet not so much as it would be weird when you then shifted the color and there weren't any. Um, But one of the ones that we remained committed to throughout was this they're with Kusevitsky, Kusevitsky giving this lecture, which again is taken right from the letters of, you know, must live his life clean and you should change your name and all that. And then Felicia says, well, show me what's this stuff he wants you to get rid of, the musical theater. And she pulls him right into the musical theater and seeing Fancy Free. And 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 we're doing a couple things there. I think the first moment is, you know, there's, you know, you know, he says, well, it's not serious music. And she says, but what do you want? And Lenny says, well, I want a lot of things. And when he says that, he looks right at this very handsome sailor who's dancing, right? And there's a moment there where you see Felicia clock that look. And that is supposed to be the moment where she's like, oh, I get it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I see, right? Yeah. And there's been enough issues with the relationship that I see what's going on here. And so like clocking that. And then he dances for her. And that dance is actually, you know, I think for Bradley, that was always like almost like a mating call, like a mating ritual. Like it's it's meant to like, yeah, you see, I like men, but I also like you. And so I'm going to dance for you. But then they're pulled into this sort of dream ballet, right? And in the dream ballet, Lenny's pulled away by a bunch of sailors, right? And we all know the connotation. There's a reason there's a connotation with sailors because a lot of these men used to sign up for the merchant marine, right? And so, you know, Lenny's pulled away with the sailors and that is supposed to have a very clear import. And in the meantime, Felicia's pulled away by this handsome man we've met earlier, Dick Hart, who's the guy with the mustache who she met, who Shirley was trying to set him up for. He's not long for the marriage. And so we're in very, very subtle brushstrokes. We're showing what happened in that four years where they were engaged and then they were, they were literally pulled apart. They literally broke the engagement off. Right. And then spent three or four years apart. She went with Descartes and then he went with a lot of different men. Right. And then they come back together, you know, and get engaged. Right. And then get married after Kusevitsky's death. And so in some ways, that's what that dream ballet is supposed to represent. 
And then we have the scene where they're then on the floor and they're talking about, and again, it's a little more clear, you know, Bradley, sorry, Lenny says, you know, sometimes I, I just can't seem to find myself. And, and Felicia says, well, you're a Bernstein, not a Burns, right? <laughs> you know, which I agree with, you know, Burns has absolutely no love. Felicia Burns has absolutely no luster. And then she says, you don't know how much you need me, right? And from there, we then go to the scene where they're walking together. And Felicia then quotes from the very famous, there's this wonderful letter, which, you know, among Bernstein scholars is pretty famous because it's written like 5253. It's right after they get married. And she literally writes to him, and this was sealed until right before I started working on the project. It was sealed for like 25 years um, by the family, along with a number of his other letters to lovers, um, which, you know, and, and then they were opened up. And this letter from Felicia is amazing because it says, you are a homosexual. I, I, you know, I, I know you are a homosexual and may never change. I happen to love you as you are. So let's see what will happen if you are free to do as you like without guilt or confession, please. Which is this remarkable thing. And then she says, let's give it a whirl, right? Basically saying like, yeah, we're married, but this isn't a life sentence. And like, let's see what happens. If, you know, do what you want. Just don't tell me about it, right? <laughs> and, and let's see. And it's amazing because that letter freed him, right? In this amazing way. And that's the pact. That's the contract, right? Right there in print, right? And so we have her quote this letter, and then he pretends to propose, and then they're, and then from there we go to the Merrill interview, where five years later they're married and they're seemingly pretty happy, right? And so, to to us, I think the Dream Ballet served not only the purpose of showing the Fishers that she's going to hop over anyway, right, and and showing us that she is very aware, like she, exactly as you say, like she knows exactly who he is, and then also. And serves this other purpose of there are two musical tent poles, if you will. While there's wonderful music Lenny throughout the piece, there are two musical performances that are the tent poles. One is that moment, you know, which represents the com composition. And then there's the conducting of Mahler, of resurrection, which is also tied right to the marriage because it is the moment after they split that they come back together, right? And that represents the conducting. And so, and so these tent poles serve as the pieces around which everything else is layered, if that makes sense. Yeah, it is so beautiful how we have that, that scene, your truth is a fucking lie, that really does rip your heart out of your chest. Like uh, Felicia tells Lenny that he has hate in his heart and will die a lonely old queen. Of course, then there's the brilliant Snoopy punchline at yeah. the Thanksgiving parade. Love that. Um, and then, yeah, the, the sort of the Mahler Resurrection Symphony, she takes back what she said. And she says, um, it, you know, you have no hate in your heart. And it, it's such a brilliant scene, this pure cinema, that segment, because you understand as an audience why it is that these people around Lenny, that, that exist in, in his orbit, that have entered his tractor beam, why it is they do kind of endure what they have to often suffer to be around him. Um, I, I, I would say that... Um... You know, what's interesting about that scene in particular, um, first off, um, the Snoopy and the Dial Only Old Queen, you know, Humphrey Burton in his book had written, you know, you're going to dial only old man. He'd, he'd gotten that quote, but he had he had sanitized it. And in Fili and, and in Jamie's book, Famous Father Girl, she gave us the real quote, which is you're going to dial only old. 
um, and uh, and it's just brutal. Um, and moreover, Jamie also mentioned the particular fight that Thanksgiving and Snoopy going by the window. And to me, this is a good uh, to me. This, this speaks to the difference between screenwriter and director. Right. You know, I sort of love the quote and I was like, yes, we need this fight here. This is the big fight that we've been gearing up towards, you know, whereas Bradley was like uh, agreed and I need Snoopy. He's like, I need Snoopy. And I was like, I never got it. I never was. I, I was like, Snoopy, really? Like, who cares? Right? I was like, it's a big fight. That's the point. And then and I literally didn't get it until I saw and, you know, I didn't see it till quite late because, you know, there's there's there's, you know, I, I saw the fight. I saw he was holding one. You know, initially I was like, I don't know. Like, do you need to push into Felicia? And then I saw it on the big screen. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You're like a fly on the wall. Brilliant direction. <laughs> And, but still, I didn't see with the VFX. And then finally, I see with the VFX in and I hear the laughter and I'm like, oh, my God. Right. This is brilliant. And it just speaks to the vision of a director. Um, and then another vision of director thing is, you know, we would always imagine that Mahler moment. And it's perfect because it's resurrection. Right. And it's when the marriage gets resurrected um, and she takes back all those things she said. But, you know, you said it beautifully. Right. It's really about that. You know, we see for the first time in some ways what makes it all worth it. We see him conduct and the glory that that is and what it provides, not just for him, but for the entire world around him. Right. And 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 what an amazing thing it is that to be there, to be in Ely Cathedral, watching him you know, being a part of that music, right? And, and and you see, you know, Bradley referred to it as like, that's the shark. You know, we're going to hide the shark for as long as possible. And you don't really see Lenny conduct until that moment. You see a little bit of the of, of, of Manfred at his debut. Um, you see him do uh, conduct a chorus, you know, singing, you know, make our garden grow. But you don't see the full on, you know, Lenny as conductor until that moment. And it's supposed to do exactly that. It's supposed to make you feel as Felicia feels, right? Like that this love and this man are, are worth it. And while it is challenging, right? Like this is part of what you put up with, you know, you know, when supporting and managing genius. It makes it all the more devastating that the beauty of their reconciliation, the fact that kind of Felicia falls ill soon after and we witness her her death in this incredibly intimate way, in this way that we don't often see on screen, like the, the kind of tuna breath conversation and things like that. There's a slowness to to those scenes. And what follows as well is is incredibly sad. Like uh, you know, we we see Lenny kind of become irretrievably lost following her death, like having affairs with young students, clubbing with them and so on. And and it occurred to me, like there is a triumph in the other real life stories that, that you've told on screen, a, a mission accomplished in The Post, in First Man, in Spotlight. You've always had something of a happy ending to, to reach towards in all those stories, Josh. You didn't have that here. And I wondered how hard that was to write on an emotional level and, and, and what it was like to write an incredibly, what, what should be a downbeat ending, but somehow has this poise and beauty to it. It was it was very challenging. And, and, and you know, we knew it was going to go dark. Um, and moreover, like, you know, it, it's funny because and I, The Irishman, which is a movie that, you know, Bradley and I both look up to, 
you know, the end of that movie is it has a similar sort of dark old man quality to it, um, which I think is brilliant. I think goes on a little long. And so one of the things Bradley and I were lined, lined on from the beginning was that once Felicia dies, you can't spend, too, you can't tarry too long. You can't spend too much time. But we thought it was very important to show, again, as like, look, the question is, is this a real marriage? The answer is yes, right? And part of that answer is showing what Lenny became after she was gone. And and this is clear in all the biographies and talking with the kids, you know, uh, 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 you know, Lenny really was lost. He really he really struggled without that anchor. Uh, he descended into, you know, pills and liquor and, you know, and, and, and carousing and, you know, the circus, you know, there was, and he was still conducting and he was still teaching. Um, he didn't compose very much, you know, certainly not much of note. Um, you know, although he tried, but was very much struggling with it. Um, and, and I think struggled to find his center through all that, through those entire 12 years when he was without her. Uh, he was really quite lost, um, you know, somewhat rem reminiscent of the years uh, between sort of 47 and 50 when the, the engagement was cut off and he was lost then. Um, and, um, and so we felt it was really important to depict that as, again, a statement towards, you know, this was a real marriage and he was not the same without her. But we did struggle on what's the uplift at the end. And we get some of that in the teaching. Just the that teaching scene is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it shows his brilliance. And, and I mean, it's, and Bradley's incredible. Uh, the kid who plays William is great. It shows his brilliance. It gets to the heart of, you know, music and conducting. Um, but the very, very end, we struggled with. And we'd actually written, we, we wrote a version of him conducting Make Our Garden Grow. Um, which would have had some uplift, but ultimately, once you once 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 you film, you know, at Ely Cathedral, and you know what that is like, it's really tough to go back to him conducting again because how is it going to be? Unless you do some sort of montage, and then it starts feeling like a star is born, and it, you know, it, it really, it, it, you know, how to make a it, how to do an ending that's not cheap. And ultimately, what we settled on was this interview. Right. If you come back to the interview that you started with, you bring it all around and then you're basically, you know, you're closing on what you began with, and you're talking about Felicia again. You're seeing again, this is the proof of concept. This is this wasn't real marriage. And then you end with with that famous ending of Candide, which Felicia ended when she had come to her resolution of I can't live without him. She says at the end of the scene in the plaza, any questions? And this is totally Bradley. Right. This is genius of Bradley. Like. You know, you know, he is right there along the way in the writing. He is right there along the way on the set. And he's basically like, oh, well, we ended the plaza scene with any questions. Let's end this with any questions. Right. And which which to me is a is sort of a beautiful ending to a movie that is posing, you know, a question from the very start. Right. Um, posing a series of questions about the man and his marriage. Um, and of course, you know, in some ways, hopefully we've answered a lot of those questions. In some ways, hopefully you have a lot more questions. Go and look at Lenny online. Go and research him. Go and watch him do omnibus. Go and watch him do young people's concerts. Go and watch his Murrow interview with Felicia and, and make your own decisions. Um, see if we've come to the same you've come to the same conclusions that we have. Something you just said there led me to a thought. It, you described how how lost and almost kind of bereft of rhythm 
Lenny is once Felicia is gone. And it occurs to me that, you know, it, it's a very purposeful choice to call this maestro instead of Bernstein or, you know, to name it after one of his compositions. That seems to be the way most music biopics uh, do things. There's an ambiguity to it, like that title in a way, like it's almost as if like Felicia has been a conductor in, in terms of Lenny's ability to, to pursue his, his art. It, was that, I know obviously it would be Maestra technically, if you wanted to get pinnickety about it, but w- was that intentional? Is, is there a degree yeah. to which you're- Yeah, and, yeah. and look, we debated the title uh, a little bit and Bradley had, you know, went back and forth, but ultimately I think we decided it was the right title because it, it really refers to both of them in different ways, right? You know, great title has multiple meanings, right? Like, you know, spotlight is the spotlight team, Right. And it's also shining a spotlight on, you know, uh, 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 what happened there. Um, you know, uh, uh, and I think, um, you know, for for this maestro, like, yes, he's obviously a famous maestro, but who's really pulling the strings? Who's really the conductor? And I would say, you know, for a, a lot of his life, she was right. And when she wasn't there, you know, the orchestra sort of lost its way. Right. You know, um, it's funny, you know, uh, uh, people often ask, well, what's a conductor really for? And in point of fact, conductors weren't really, you didn't have conductors, right? You know, until I think the middle of the 19th century, you know, often it was just the the first chair who was sort of cueing the musicians and there was no conductor. And then at some point, again, I believe in the middle of the 19th century, someone wound up standing up you know, in the center and, and leading the orchestra. And I think, you know, what a conductor does is not only rehearse with the orchestra and get them to accentuate and focus and make the piece, you know, their own in a certain way, but then pushes those ideas on the day um, and shapes the piece um, much in the way a director shapes the story. Right. And so, you know, I feel like that is very much the role Felicia played in Lenny's life. That's so beautiful. Um, one thing that's really exciting for anyone who loved this movie is, you know, the, the, some of the creative team responsible for it are about to reunite from what I hear. Steven Spielberg is directing Bradley Cooper in a Josh Singer written bullet reboot. Is, is there anything you can tell us about that next project? Um. You know, uh, I'm hard at work. I will be uh, I will be pounding away on that as soon as we're we're through here. Um, uh, look, I love working with Stephen. I have loved working with Bradley. Um, you know, uh, I've spent a bunch of time up in San Francisco. Uh, this wonderful director, der, der, Detective Mike Philpot, who was uh, head of the homicide division uh, for a number of years. Um, and uh, now works uh, part-time, uh, working on cold cases. Uh, he sort of showed me around and he's been sort of a go-to. Um, you know, I think policing is a really interesting subject right about now. And it's a difficult one because uh, certainly in the U.S., um, you know, I think we are stuck in a cycle and have been for a long time of, you know, of over-policing because of crime. And then something horrible happens, like George Floyd. And then there is a backlash and there is a call for defunding the police, right? Which is not really a call for the end of police, but really a call for, you know, can we, can we, you know, can we rein, rein the police in 
And then, you know, in the wake of that, you, you certainly over here, you had the pandemic and there was a spike in crime and the police officers I spoke to in San Francisco walk around on eggshells because they're afraid of getting in trouble, you know, especially in a highly politicized liberal climate like San Francisco, um, which, by the way, like I agree with, like, yeah, I want my police to be a little nervous, right? <laughs> but maybe not as nervous as they are right now. And so it's it's a very tricky thing um, you know, when you think about modern policing, like how to do it right, you know, and and certainly when you throw race into it, it's it's a real mess, um, you know, and, and if you look at, you know, the inadvertent racial, I shouldn't say inadvertent, the actual racial public profiling that's gone on, um, that's highly problematic as well. And so to me, I feel like there's an opportunity um, to tell a great fun story that trades in the verite that the original bullet traded in and also talk a little bit about like what do we want right what kind of policing do we want um you know do we want um you know policing that is you know i mean and and some of the things that police have these days like we have drones in la right and there are drones there are drones that they have built with um, with tasers on them. Uh, and is that something we would want or not? And I don't think they're, I think they're used in a couple places in the country, but not used certainly in LA and not used in San Francisco. And how much tech do we want and how powerful do we want our police to be? Um, so I think there are, I'm talking all on thematic questions. <laughs> Trust me, there are a lot of good chases, right? <laughs> it's action packed. And I think uh, I think there's a pretty good story there. But uh, the things I can talk about are the thematics. <laughs> so uh, I know people are going to walk away from this podcast saying, well, that sounds like a really boring bullet. Um, but uh, but it is not that. It's just that's the only thing I can really talk about right now. And we want to save save the rest uh, as a surprise. Let, let me just say, I think, you know, obviously, Bullet is a great character. And there are some other really wonderful characters in the piece. Um, and, and yes, you might see that Mustang again. So, well, I can't wait, Josh. And, um, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I guess there's, um, there's nothing left to say other than Josh Singer. Would you like to introduce the, the piece of music that's going to play us out today? Ah, are we, are we going to go with, uh, Cavalier Rusticana? We're going to go are with we it. Gonna go with, uh, are we going to go with the interlude to, uh, the intermezzo, I should say. That is what you promised listeners. Uh, that is what I promised listeners is the intermezzo. Let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, there it is. Here it is. Uh, if you listen to the beginning of Raging Bull, um, you will hear this. Um, and I think it's a real, frankly, it's an inspiration for how music can be central to a piece. And frankly, you know, with... You know, Bradley and I were always trying to reinstill a love of classical music into our viewers. Um, and Raging Bull was certainly, certainly a huge inspiration for us. Uh, and so uh, I don't know how you can listen to this piece and not be moved uh, as we have been over the years. So hats off to Mr. Scorsese. <laughs> Who can hold a tune, the exclusive that we got in this episode. Josh Singer, thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. Thanks very much. Take care.
You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash scriptapart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.